Thank you, Eric. Well, I've got a, uh, I got a trivia question to start off with you. And uh, let's see, those of you my age and older should be able to uh, come up with this one. I want you to fill out the lyrics of this song. You, who are on the road, must have a code that you can live by. Who, who wrote that song? Do you remember who wrote that song? You, who are on the road. Come on, it's Cosby, Stills, and Nash. Crosby, Stills, and Nash. Yeah. Well, well, let me give you a way to your question then. Okay, yeah, yeah. What is the code that you live by? What are the principles in your life that don't merely, you know, kind of guide the way that you live, but they, they form the inviolate code for your life, whatever should happen in your life? They're not principles for success, but they're principles for honor. And we're going to learn today what that code is uh, for David. And our two chapters that were read present, uh, present two occasions in which King Saul, who is, is bent on killing David, is placed in David's hands. Two times, David is given the opportunity to put an end to the tormentor of his life. Now let's consider the first instance. David and his men are hiding in a cave from Saul and his troops. Fortune so has it that Saul, needing to do what nature calls him to do, chooses the cave that David and his men are hiding in, and he goes in there unaccompanied. David, or one of his eager men, need only creep up from behind and just quietly end Saul's life. Now, the second opportunity shows really how gutsy a warrior David is. He, with a companion, sneaks into the camp of Saul. They're all sleeping. He stands right beside there, the sleeping king. One thrust of a spear, as Abishah said, and the king is dead. No disturbance, and they can just slip on out. So the opportunity to kill Saul is given to David twice and in such a way that it's pretty evident that it is given by the Lord himself. I mean, that's exactly what David's men concluded in that cave. They had said to him, here is the day of what the Lord said to you. Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. Now, we don't have a record of this prophecy that the men are speaking of, but there's no reason to doubt that it was made to David. And now, now the moment has come. I mean, how else can you explain how David's chief enemy chooses that one cave where David is hiding? And he, even to go in there without any protection at all. Now, for that second opportunity, as we saw David creates a situation, he determines to go into Saul's camp. It, it seems like a foolhardy move, and yet, what the text notes is this, that they were all asleep because a deep sleep from the Lord had fallen upon them. You know, no doubt, I mean, David had noticed this unusual scene. I mean, how could an entire army... They know that their enemies are nearby. How could there not be sentries awake? How could everyone be asleep? 
So again, the Lord has provided David the opportunity, and this time it's David's companion. Abishai, and he states the obvious. God has given your enemy into your hand this day. Now please, let me, let me pin him to the earth with one stroke of the spear, and I will not strike him twice. So David has the opportunity. In each case, the opportunity appears to be given by the Lord. He has the counsel of his closest companions encouraging him. He also has the motivation. You know, his life is being made miserable by, by Saul, who is constantly hunting him down. Now, he could furthermore make the case that the killing of Saul would be, would be just as served. We must remember, Samuel, the prophet and the judge, had already pronounced judgment against Saul. He had said back in chapter 15, the Lord has rejected you from being king of Israel. Now, David's slaying of Saul, that would just carry out the judgment. And Saul, by the way, has never redeemed himself. I mean, back then he had said some kind of words of repentance when he was rebuked. But this obsessive animosity toward a man who had done him no wrong, who, uh, he, who you have to testify there is no evil in David's heart, but there is clearly evil now in Saul's heart. I mean, it's one thing to have been an inept ruler. It's another to become a murderous ruler. And instead of yielding his throne when he was sentenced by the Lord, He's held on it even tighter against the will of the Lord that he supposedly repented before. Saul deserves death. And David, for that matter, deserves to be the executor. Samuel had said to Saul that the Lord had rejected him and that he has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. That's David. I and mean, this is a, it's a bitter pill to have to swallow. Nonetheless, that's the judgment rendered by the prophet of the Lord. Now, Saul, understandably, I mean, he can be bitter about the judgment. But he cannot question that that judgment came from the Lord. Nor, as he himself will testify, indeed, as his own son Jonathan had already said of him, He knows without doubt who that favored neighbor is. He knows that it is David. So David has the God-ordained authority. David himself has been anointed. And he can exercise judgment as a king. If anyone should be able to slay Saul, it ought to be David, or by David's command. So again, let's rehearse this. Saul has the opportunity Opportunity has been given by the Lord. He has personal motivation. He has a just cause. And he has the authority. So why does David not drive that spear home? I mean, is he Hamlet? And he's filled with, with doubts about what to do? Does he lack the courage to draw blood or, or at least, at least to strike a defenseless man? Well, David has no doubts. He certainly does not lack courage. But he does have a code of honor. And he states it clearly in each instance. 
chapter 24, verse 6. The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointing, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. And then, and then again in 26, 9. Do not destroy him, for who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? Saul was anointed by God through Samuel. And so he is the Lord's anointed. And no one, as David's code is, can strike a hand against the Lord's anointed. But David, no doubt his men were saying this. We want to say it. Saul has shamed his title. He has forfeited it. No man may put out his hand against the Lord's anointing. But David, Saul is trying to kill you. No one may put out his hand against the Lord's anointing. But, but David, you're the Lord's anointing. No one may put out his hand against the Lord's anointing. There's no arguing with David on this point. Whatever Saul has done, whatever he has become, what cannot be erased is that Saul at one time received the anointing of the Lord. At least according to David's code, no one has the right or the authority to harm the anointed of the Lord. He is immovable on this matter. Now, he does give some explanation to Abishai. In his mind, if the Lord gives the judgment, then it is the Lord who will enact the judgment. And he will do it in his own time through his own method. As he says in 26, verse 10, as the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him or his day will come to die or he will go down into battle and perish. And so one might conclude that David... Through all of this, I mean, looking on the outside, that David is a fool. He's an honorable fool, but he's a fool nonetheless. Because, David, how do you know? How do you know that Saul's going to get the judgment he deserves? How do you know that you, David, will become king? Well, David knows because he knows his God. And he trusts his God. That's how David had the courage in the first place to fight Goliath. And that is how he has the courage to refrain from fighting Saul. Indeed, David shows his courage by what he does afterwards in each episode. In each case, he makes himself visible. Thus, he makes himself and his men vulnerable. And he boldly calls out Saul. He shows in each instance how he held Saul's life in his hands. And then he makes his case before Saul of who between the two is in the wrong. Now, that's boldness, to be sure. And it's effective. In each instance, Saul acknowledges the rightness of David's argument. And indeed, each time he promises to relent from pursuing David. And as we know, each time he will renege on that promise. So it's here, it's in what he has to say afterwards, in this David's bold argument before the king that he demonstrates his own qualification to be king. 
David might be a fugitive, but he is not a coward. And Saul may feel threatened by David, but David is not a rebel. And though David is God's anointed, he will not take that anointing as license to take matters into his own hands, to remove the present anointed king from the throne. Let's go back to that prophecy that David's men spoke of. Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. Well, the men were right. The prophecy had come true. The Lord had given David's enemy into his hand to do as it seemed good for David to do. After the men, the way they interpreted it, that meant for David to kill his enemy. But David passed the true test. The test was given to him by God, by placing Saul into his hands. And that test was for him to prove his trust in his God. To prove himself a man of honor. And here truly, David proves himself to be a man of honor Worthy to ascend the throne when the time comes. So David had a code. By that code, he was a man of honor. And so that lesson from these episodes is pretty straightforward, isn't it? Do we, do we have a code of honor? And is that code honorable before the Lord? We've seen David's code. It was simple. Under no circumstances will I set my hand against the Lord's anointing. That code was impervious to circumstances. The Lord provided the opportunity. The, he was, uh, the uh, anointed Saul was not worthy any longer to be anointed. The anointed was trying to kill him. But he was impervious to that. And see, that's the value of a code. It allows for clear thinking and action in unsettling times and circumstances. It breaks through indecision over the, well, what about this? If I do it this way, what might happen? It, it takes care of the what ifs when you're trying to, to deliberate. And if I do it this way, then that might take place. It just takes care of all of that. It provides stability through all the changes that are taking place in life. You know, the three friends of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they had a code of honor. Their code was that they would not bow down to idols. And so when they were threatened by the most powerful king of their day, Nebuchadnezzar, to be cast into a burning furnace, if they did not bow down to his golden image, This was their reply. Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. There was nothing complicated for them in making their decision. 
You had to think about, well, you know, if we just, you know, kind of do it now and then later on we can say that we were put under pressure and people would understand. No. God's law said not to worship man-made images. They will obey God's law. They don't need to discuss the implications, the consequences, the possible scenarios. Just keep the code of obedience. The apostles of Jesus had a had a code. They had been commissioned by Jesus to proclaim uh, his name and his work. They are brought before the highest council of the Jews, and they are warned to stop preaching and teaching in Jesus' name. And this was their response. Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And again, they don't need to deliberate among themselves over the answer to give. They had a code. Be obedient to the commission from Jesus. And that settles the matter. They don't have to worry about what the outcome will be. They just have to do what is right. Now, Daniel's friends that were saved... On that day that they held to their code of honor, the apostles also were saved. Although, eventually, our understanding, all but one, would be martyred. Because, see, the point of a code is not to keep one safe, not to make one prosperous, but to keep one honorable. It's Proverbs 22, one states a good name, meaning an honorable name is to be chosen rather than great riches. Now, I've been using that that term, that phrase, code of honor, because I I think it best expresses what is meant by a code in our text and by the other texts given. But now we need to examine what makes up a true code of honor so that actually the code doesn't bring dishonor. First of all, we have to understand that you can have a code of honor, a good code of honor, for the wrong reason. I mean, we can have a code of not lying. Maybe of helping the poor. Even defending the cause of Christ and yet do it all for the wrong reason. I mean, that's the whole point of 1 Corinthians 13.3. It explains it this way. If I give away all I have, if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Now, many can hold to a code of honor just simply as a means of preserving their own sense of their personal dignity. This is below me to do that. I'm not going to be like other people. The code of honor is a code for their, uh, for themselves, their own sense of honor. The Christian code of honor is a code for preserving the honor of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is held out of love, out of devotion to Christ. So the Christian asks not, well, what is honorable for me, but what is honorable before the Lord? What is honorable for the Lord? And one can have a wrong code of honor. Mobsters and gangsters, I mean, they have codes of honor built in just to allow them to commit their crimes. 
Some treat saying, you know, whatever they want to say as a code of honor. Well, I just speak my own mind. You know where I stand on things. And they don't mind leaving a trail of hurt feelings and of pain. Never admit that you're wrong. Never apologize. Never back down. Always insist on your own way. Follow your heart wherever it leads. These are popular codes of our day, but they're sinful. The Christian code of honor is derived from the commands and the instructions of Scripture. We may never adapt for our code principles that are contrary to what our Lord Jesus Christ would have us to hold. And that's why we must immerse ourselves in Scripture. We cannot keep a code that we do not know. We cannot form a code through kind of casual reading and hearsay. We have to carefully study God's word so that our code of honor will distinguish us from the world. And so, for example, wherever you may place yourself on the on the liberal conservative scale of values and politics, you ultimately you must be diligent to be distinguished by the values of the kingdom of God as taught by Jesus Christ. I'll give you a modern-day example. I went Wednesday night to, to see that documentary called Emmanuel. Now, that's about the, the murders that took place four years ago at Mother Emmanuel AME Church in Charleston. We remember that. Now, as horrific as those murders were, what ended up causing the greater sensation was the reaction of the families of those victims. Do you remember that? Perhaps you listened to the live remarks of the family members one by one. The judge gave them opportunity to speak to the killer. And what did they speak? Each one spoke words of forgiveness. They presented the gospel. They they wanted him to be saved. Now, where did that come from? They hadn't collaborated over what to say. They not deliberated over, well, now, now we do this. We have to think about what the consequences might be. They just simply said what they knew that they must say if they are followers of Jesus, who has taught his followers to forgive their enemies. You know, there was one young man. He's the son of one of the victims. He had... Uh, Reporters came to him, and they caught him off guard, and they asked him, well, how do you feel towards this murderer? And he said, the first words that came out of his mouth was that he forgave him. And he later explained, he said, he said, I didn't even know where that came from. I don't know how those words came out. I was, I'd been caught off guard. But what did he reveal? He revealed that he had a code of honor that it was deeply rooted in his heart. As Lord said, his Lord had said to him to forgive, forgive is what he must do. And that was not without criticism. There were a number of folks who, who criticized that, saying, you know, look. And they made sound arguments for why forgiveness should not have been offered 
at least not so soon, that how inappropriate it was and how it was arresting with the, the opportunity to protest against what had taken place. But the result led to actually to a massive movement of support and commitment to let love instead of hate win the day. You see, that's what's holding to a true code of honor that is honorable before the Lord will often do. And sometimes holding on to a code of honor will lead to dishonor before the, Lord, before the world. Like, I mean, we're experiencing that now. And values that we hold on to and the world despises us. What Jesus told his followers that the world would hate them. That they would be persecuted for following him. That to follow Jesus means you're going to be taking up your own cross. And so all the more reason how important it is to hold on to, to have, and to hold on to a code of honor. Because that is what will keep us faithful to our Lord. And in the end, that's what matters, isn't it? But we can't control whether our name is going to be honored or dishonored in this world. We're to try to have a good name. Scripture says, both in Romans 12 and in 1 Peter 2, that we're to live before the world in a way that will be considered honorable. But even then, the goal is to honor Christ. Because, again, what matters is not how the world is going to regard us, but how our Lord, how our Lord and Savior regards us. And there is no higher honor than to hear our Lord say to us, Well done, good and faithful servant. Because our Lord held to his code of honor. That code of honor was to do the will of his Father at whatever cost it may require, because he had that code of honor and he lived by it. He obtained forgiveness for us. He obtained a salvation from our sinful states. And so he is worthy to emulate. He is worthy to follow. His honor is worth upholding whatever the circumstance, whatever the cost. We give you thanks, our God, for our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for that code of his not to hold on to, to glory. It's something to be grasped. We gave it all up. To do your will, because he delighted to do your will. And he saw the joy that was before him, which is to be honored by you, that made it all worthwhile. May we be faithful in the following of our Lord Jesus Christ. May we walk by a code of honor, a code to be obedient to our Lord, no matter what the circumstance may be. Uh, to have a code that is honoring to you and keeps us honorable before you. In Jesus' name, amen.